Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs, and this is our 103rd show. So we much appreciate everyone's support, and uh, the authors really love having all of you on board and ask him questions. Today's guest is Bill Sanders, author of Creative Conflict. And Bill, if you could show that book of yours. Yes. Designed. And an excellent read, by the way, because all of us have a hard time um, really leveraging our skill sets and what we do and um, in our negotiations. We always tend to um, not get as much as we probably our value should be. So Bill, let's start off with you telling us about your background and your current business. Okay, that's uh, great, Mark. Thanks, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. And uh, I've been in negotiating for a long time, for the last 20, maybe 25 years. Um, and mostly I did that work with uh, the Chester Karras organization that's very well known for conducting negotiating seminars. They've trained well over a million people. Uh, where I was the director of program development, and my responsibility was to customize negotiating seminars for large clients. And in that role, I did hundreds, maybe thousands of interviews of top managers and C-level people at major global corporations around the world. Um, Learned a lot about how people in different roles negotiate and how negotiation takes place and negotiation cultures within different companies and within different um, regions of the world as well. I developed content, I led some seminars and Frank Mobus was a senior executive at Keras. He was a, a business partner of mine when he started the Mobus Creative Negotiating organization. And we went to the public and did a slightly different take on negotiation than we'd, than we'd learned and, and promoted at Keras, where, where we thought that business was starting to change and that deals were more complex and more long-term. And negotiation required a slightly different approach that took more into account negotiating for uh, long-term relationships and for doing repeat business. And that, that, that winning at all costs was not the best approach. The best approach was to really find the better deal for both parties. And that's what, what we've been concentrating on at, Mo, at Mobus Creative Negotiating. Frank passed away a couple of years ago. And so I've been running the company and, and he and I together wrote this book. <coughs> So why this title uh, for the book? Yeah, the title is funny because, you know, there's a lot of negotiating books and a lot of the good titles have been taken. But what we found was that really good negotiators do it with creativity. 
they find and make a better deal, both for themselves and the other party. The conflict part was that, look, there's there's naturally conflict bound to exist in any negotiation because uh, you want something and I want something else. Right there, we're in conflict. And the art to really making a better deal is to be able to live with that conflict and the tension and let that uh, create the, the, the bubbling up of better ideas. If you're too conflict averse, and a lot of people are these days, it's tough to keep the talk going and to surface the ideas that will make a better deal. So, so what we say is you've got to embrace the conflict part of it, be willing to live with it while continuing to talk and provide better ideas and search for and probe for better ideas from the other, other side as well. And you know, this is what leads me to my next question. You wrote a romantic couple had a lower outcome aspirations and less frequently generated offers, which facilitate the discovery of mutually beneficial outcomes. I love the way that's phrased. Why is that since they love each other? Like, you know, you know, negotiation, gosh, we're negotiating everything in our lives, but certainly when you're with a significant other, there's a lot of negotiation too. How, why did this happen? There is a lot of negotiation, but and especially among dating couples, less so amongst longtime married couples, as you could probably attest to, and I will as well. But for dating couples, they're more interested in harmoniousness and getting along and making the other person happy than they are in finding better, you know, immediate solutions or better long-term solutions. So there's too much conflict avoidance. Um, Now, I don't mean... There's too much conflict avoidance, but in terms of making better, more creative deals, there's too much conflict avoidance. And, and it, it's it's it probably makes sense of you know I can't fault people in that situation for preferring harmony over better deal making. Yeah, because you're afraid of blowing it all up or hurting someone's feelings for sure. That's right. Um, so, and you, and you uh, don't know them as well as you will later in the relationship, so you don't know what might be uh, you know a offensive or hurtful and later on you find that out you're more willing to be a little more aggressive in the negotiating part i think also when you're married and i was married 25 years you you pretty much say i'm going to pick my spots of negotiation and 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 ignore the other things even if you're trying like you don't agree with them but you're like it's just not worth the aggravation well that's Pass on those, and that could end up tipping the boat over because she didn't push back. That's that's a key point. It actually relates to a question you got later on in your list, and maybe we'll get to it. But yeah, it always makes sense to pick your spots. You don't need to negotiate everything. Um, sometimes it might it might leave you worse off than if you if you don't negotiate it. But many, I would say, negotiation is is underused rather than overused. So uh, Frank uh, Mobis, and I, I, did I pronounce it correctly? Yes, that's exactly okay, right. Good, good. Why did he think negotiating was a goldmine of concealed value? What did he mean by that? Well, what he meant by that is, and especially in the business world, deals are made by normal people every day. Big deals, little deals, you know, ag- agreements over, you know, everything from, you know, how you're going to run a project, budgetary issues internally, 
um, to deals with customers, deals with vendors. If we don't work hard enough to make the best deal we can for both sides, that value goes wanting. It's, it's missed. It's lost forever. So, so part of the key in generating value as an employee for your organization is to make great deals on behalf of your company. Also, for yourself. You write about, you write about collaborating and competing at the same time. Uh, how, do you, how does that work? It's, it's interesting, and people don't see this in a lot of industries where they just think their competitors are their competitors, and that's it. But there are a lot of industries where um, competitors end up you know, working alongside uh, one another. And in order to do that well, they, they need to sort of compete fairly, but then also be able to work together with their competitors. So places where you would see this a lot might be the construction industry or the oil and gas industry where, you know, they do farm in farm out deals with their competitors. You know, one side will do the drilling another side will do the, um, you know, the, 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 the gas transport. You'll see it in um, technology a lot, you know, like, like in, like in major networks where, AT&T might need uh, some capacity on Verizon lines or, or whatever. So they, they have to be competitors, but they also have to work together. It, it happens in a lot of places these days. Uh, you wrote that uh, Frank Mobis was a good listener. Are most people focused on their side of the argument? And why is being a good listener important? Generally, that's the case because you know your own side of the argument. And it's not good enough to just be a good listener. You've got to be a good active listener. Yeah, I want to understand what you're saying. I want to hear what you're saying. But I have to continue the, confirmation, the conversation and probe for more information. The more I can get you to talk, the more I might learn about you know, what you really need, what you are seeking to avoid, stuff that might go unsaid otherwise. And how do you come up with this better deal for both parties if you can't surface the unspoken issues. And you do that through listening and through active listening and probing for more information. It's, it's, it's a critical skill for good negotiators. I once had to tell a client of mine as we were raising money and we were the investor and he kept talking over the investor all the time. And I had to ask to take a break and literally I must smack him in the face uh, to get him to stop talking and just start listening because the guy was really interested and was in negotiation about investing uh, in his company. And once he started listening, negotiation went a lot faster and better because of that um, skill. But that's a skill that a lot of people have yet to develop that good listening skill. Yeah, exactly. It's very, it's very, a good example is in sales where, you know, the great salespeople I mean, the great salespeople, the one who make a lot of deals, close a lot of deals and make good deals, you know, they're not pitching all the time. They're finding out what their clients really want and what their clients really need. And sort of less experienced salespeople are unha unhappy with like silence in the room and they feel they've got to they've got to talk their way through their benefits and their features to keep the conversation going the more experienced ones are adept at asking questions and listening for what the customer really needs rather than trying to tell them what they have. 
Yeah, there was a, a there was a guy who was a partner in an accounting firm, and uh, I had fifteen board members uh, on this organization. They ran public companies, and fourteen of the fifteen had this guy as their accountant. And I asked them why, and they said all he did when we initially met him was just ask us lots of questions about us. We had to pull the information out of him about his own firm, and and it took us like forty five minutes until we ever got to ask him the first question. But by that time, they were so sold on him because of the quality of the questions that he yeah. asked that 14 of the 15 and the 15 said, yeah, I'm going to him too. So <laughs> 15 out of 15. I thought that was really interesting. In the book, you mentioned how negotiating has changed over the last 20 to 30 years. Can you explain? Yeah, over the last 20 or 30 years, what we've really seen, you know, particularly in manufacturing, but in service industries as well, um, the deals become more complex as products and services have become more highly customized. You know, you go back 50 years ago, saying you, you wanted a, you were designing an engine for a car, you'd pick a spark plug that was being manufactured for that car and you'd spec it into your engine. And, and nowadays it's not like that. You spec the engine and the spark plug manufacturer comes up with a new plug to meet your requirements. And that happens in everything. Like, for example, I buy skateboard shoes for footwear, my casual footwear, and I can order them online and I can order the, the suede or canvas, the polyurethane sole, the, the sticky one or the, or the hard one, the shoelace colors, where the logo is, which logo. You can order, if you use all the combinations, you can order from seven diff 700 different combinations. And that's what's going on in businesses as well today. More things are customized. And as they're customized, you end up making longer term agreements with the supplier because you can't easily kick them out and switch to something else once, once your design is specified in. So the relationships have become more long-term. There's less one-off competitive bidding by, you know, we'll buy whichever paint manufacturer specifies the lowest price, gives us the lowest price. And six months later, we'll do it again. You can't do that because you're not now just buying paint. You're buying a whole slew of services that go along with it. And, and that's what makes deal-making different today than it was years ago. And in order to make better deals, you have to be a, a better negotiator. Can you hear me okay? Oh, yes. Great, great. So what is the profile of a good negotiator and what skill sets do they need? We, we've talked a lot about it already. I mean, you, you, you have to be you have to be a, like a good interviewer, a good listener, and a, and, and, and a good asker of questions. But you also have to be pretty sharp in being able to formulate those questions on the fly. You've got to be inquisitive and curious. On the other side of the, of, of the, of the ledger, you've also got to be willing to stick to your guns until you get your story out. And, and to not give up on your positions too quickly. And you might want to give up on your positions eventually, but you don't do it quickly and you don't do it rashly. So you've got to be patient. Um, good negotiators are very patient. If you look at some of the big negotiations that are going on today, 
they just go on and on and on. Like, I mean, like you, you can think back to the old uh, salt talks with the Russians in the U.S. or the or the or the Vietnam War negotiations. They go on and on and on because sides are committed to use all the time they can um, before they come to agreements. To, in today's world, you know, Major League Baseball and the and the Players Association are having this pretty tough negotiation. And without a new contract, there will be no spring training. There will be no, you know, baseball season. It's going to be a disaster for a lot of people. And just today, they've decided to have more frequent meetings because they're starting to run into deadline pressure before spring training starts. Um, so good negotiators are patient. They're inquisitive. They'll stick to their guns. They'll get their story across in a persuasive way. They'll also be good with uh, you know facts and figures and data and doing research and preparing ahead of time. If you're a procrastinator, you know you got to get rid of that before you 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 head into a negotiation. It's easy to try and put things off to the last minute, but it doesn't pay off. I I was wondering. We're gonna we have a question waiting here for, in the audience, but I was wondering. Uh, oh, in, like Major League Baseball, the real deals don't get, uh, get the deal doesn't get done until you're to the uh, like last hour. And now you're afraid it's going to blow up the season. You know, instead of uh, working it out months in advance, it seems like without the added pressure of getting a deal done on both sides, it just doesn't get done. And there's a lot of posturing and and, you know, false flags about what they really want and what they're willing to trade, all those things. Why, why is all that? Uh, you know, it probably just comes down to human nature that uh, until we have to, we'll, we'll, we'll maintain our position. Um, you know, you probably you have to feel the, start to feel the, the, the risk and it, and, and it only starts to become real as you get closer to the deadline. Once you start to really feel it, then things happen. Things start to move. Um, a question from the audience. What are the new skill sets you need to become a great negotiator in today's business climate? Well, it's the, there's a lot of things, but, but first, you, you really have to understand the nuances of your business and the business issues you're negotiating. And, and, and to be able to look beyond the obvious. And, and, and I, I think that's a big one. Too, too many of us have been around for so long that we remember, you know, how things always have been. And you, you really got to be in tune to what's, what's really happening you know, what's really going on in production and transportation and prototyping and marketing and sales, you, you've got to get the big picture and you've got to understand the nuance. And, and today's world is much new, more nuanced than it was in the past. When you kind of understand all that pretty well, then you've got to have these other skills that we've talked about, the listening and communicating. Um, they're not all they're not always developed by the time we, you know, leave business school and get into the real world. And you've got to continue to work to be a better, a better, a better negotiator, a better, um, a more inquisitive person, a better communicator. 
and 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 to understand better what's really going on with the things you negotiate. It's funny. I taught ten years at Wharton. I don't really remember a class uh, in negotiation. I've taught a lot of business schools, and yet maybe that's the most important skill that you're going to go and develop is uh, how to negotiate and in a fair way. Yeah, that's the other thing. I think the 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 topic of fairness and ethics is more important today than ever as well. And and what does it mean to be fair and to be an ethical negotiator? And it's a difficult question. But I would say, um, you know, you've got to learn how to deal with people um, from a standpoint of good faith and to to be honest in your statements doesn't mean you have to reveal the whole truth all the time, but to be clear and to be honest and to um, to make to make deals that actually do have the other party's best interest at heart as well. So there's this, you need to have some measure of empathy to be a good negotiator as well. And a big measure of empathy, because you have to look out for the other guy, especially as we're doing more long-term relationship negotiating. Well, that's why World War II started, right? It's because the negotiation with the Germans after World War I was so one-sided that uh, they had to be, you know, Hitler came on and became vindictive, uh, and that's how he ended up in power. Yeah, I'm sure. The, well, you know, what we say at Mobis, and it really applies to these relate business relationships, is that eventually people, if you push your advantage too far for too long, eventually people get out or get even. And and those neither one of those is probably going to be good for your business situation. So you you you've you've got to be a little more even-handed and you've got to be fair. Now you can win big and and drive a fair negotiation, especially if the other side wins big at the same time. Yeah, if that's not happening. Here's a question from the audience. How do you create an environment where people are willing to be open about what they want from the agreement? We've talked about that before we uh, got on. Yeah, so that's not easy. Um, and a lot of it has to do with uh, uh, m- making some sort of personal relationship or, or company to company relationship before you really get down to hard bargaining and hard business. If, if Mark, if I know you better as a person and I know more about you and your family and your job and what you do at your company, and you know the same about me, and we can talk about things openly and honestly, even you know politis- politics or food we like, we'll have a better chance to be willing to talk openly about what we need in a deal. So, and, and you see this in certain countries, especially in, in places where you know, contract law is not so strong. In the U.S., we can say everything's in the contract. That's, you know, that carries it all the weight. And if it's in the contract, good, we have to live up to it. In other countries, you know, like like maybe in Norway, the spirit of the deal is more important than the contract itself. And in, and in, in some Asian countries, maybe the contract itself is not nearly as important as the relationship between the parties. So part of being able to make better deals is being able to make, to gain better rapport with the other side and create better personal relationships before the deal making really starts. 
Uh, look, in sales, you know, that's why Zoom is not, not so great unless you absolutely need that product. You end up, uh, you need to develop that relationship and people have a trust factor. Nobody ever buys strictly on the product itself in most cases, right? Especially complex products. They trust the people that they're dealing with and get to know them on a personal level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so actually that's part, that's the other thing about being a good negotiator. You've got to be interested in people and you've got to want to meet people and understand people and make new friends and new acquaintances. And if you can't, if you're not comfortable doing that, you, you'll find negotiating to be challenging. Uh, another question from the audience. In a world of commodities, negotiating is very challenging. Do you have any tips on how to be creative in that environment? Yes. Because, and it's true, in a world of commodities, it's it's difficult. Now, I will say, and what I said earlier is that there are things are less commoditized than they were before, but they're still commodities. However, when you buy a commodity, say, or sell a commodity, you're not just buying or selling the commodity. There's always a slew of services that go along with that commodity. How's it gonna be delivered? How's it gonna be paid for? Um, what happens if things go wrong? How well do they stand behind their commodity? There's still a lot of service elements in any commodity transaction. And the way you negotiate for those is to, yeah, negotiate the commodity and the pricing, be aware of market conditions, and you've gotta meet market conditions. Um, but then also talk about and make the deal around the service elements that are important to you, whether you're on the service on the selling side or the buying side. But the services and the and the commoditization are not do not always go hand in hand. Um, look at the services that are connected to the commodities when you negotiate over commodities. Uh, and someone from the audience mentioned that Wharton required negotiation course is the single most popular course in student polls. And I uh, just looked it up as well uh, on there. So for those of you who I said, I wasn't sure about that because I went the 2003 to 2013. I don't remember such a course, but now we know that there is. Uh, okay. And yeah, the, and I believe there's a, a professor at Wharton who's written a good book about negotiating. Yeah, it's a popular I know, book and it's a good book. Yeah, I, I'm forgetting who that is, but I, I'm I know it's not. I don't think it's Adam Grant who wrote that. Um, here's a question: How do you deal with seller's remorse when the entrepreneur borrower counterparty does not like the deal after the fact? Uh, like if they uh, do meet their own time own timeline deadlines and then a penalty. So how how do you deal with that when people you negotiating and make sure there isn't this buyer's remorse? Um, well, if you're on the buying side, you don't want buyer's remorse, but if you're on the selling side, you don't want the buyer to have remorse either. And I think the way to, to avoid that is to make sure both sides better understand the agreement they're making and the deal they're getting, and that they've really worked as hard as they can to make it better for both sides before they shake hands on the deal. It's 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 when things are left undone, unspoken, unagreed to, that that buyer's remorse is is going to tend to set in. So I would say it's just 
work harder to make sure you're getting the best deal that you can get and that you're providing a good deal for the other side as well so that both people can be happy long term. If you're not happy long time, renegotiate. <laughs> Any deal that was negotiated can be renegotiated. And we never make perfect agreements, but we can modify them over the time over time so that they are closer to being perfect. Yeah, it's funny. I say that with my agreements with my own clients. I'll say to them, you know, if we have to adjust it during the case, I'm more than willing to adjust it uh, for that. And of course, what we do see, I think everybody gets frustrated with this. If you see a player sign a four-year deal one year into it, he has a, be- a good season. And now he wants to renegotiate the deal. But if he has a bad season, he doesn't expect the team to renegotiate the deal, right? Yeah, that, it works in a lot of ways. It works. You see that in um, in uh, in the in the supply chain world as well, where where customers pay price increases when raw material prices are increasing. They so they pay these all the way up, but then if if raw material prices go down, the suppliers never volunteer lower pricing. You know, and, and 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 we have a term for that. We say prices are sticky on the way down. It's the same thing that 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 the baseball player is doing that you're talking about. And 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 actually it makes sense from both sides because when the baseball player has that great year, um, what it's really saying is his potential is demonstrably improved and his value is higher. He can renegotiate. It's now up to the team to say, look, no, you got a deal. Stick to the deal. Maybe engender some bad will and ensure that he leaves when his deal is up or to renegotiate. If they do it in good faith, it's better for both sides. Yeah, we've seen it in Philly. We've chased a lot of guys out of town because they didn't want to live with the deal that they signed. But if they turn the other way, they wouldn't want the team to go back on the deal that they agreed to. A question from the audience. How do you know when the best deal for both parties is no deal? Yeah, that's difficult. And sometimes that is the case. And you have to, and if you have the ability to be open to that option, no deal, it does make your position stronger. But it, you know, on a case by case basis, it's got to be evaluated. There's no guidelines for saying, hey, the best deal here is no deal. But, um, I'd say if you have the ability to keep that as an option, um, it may become apparent at some time that no deal is a better option than where where we where we stand now. You write about the characteristics of a good negotiating team, not just a good negotiator, but a good negotiating team. Please share, uh, please share with us. You know, how do you make that happen? How do you teach them? How do you develop a good negotiating team? Well, and many things are negotiated in teams, even if it's just you and I as the main uh, the main people holding the conversation. There's frequently people behind the scene, other stakeholders, technical experts, financial people, and the the way to have uh, a good team. One is to work as a team, which means actually prepare as a team. Sometimes these things just happen ad hoc. So there's no planning, but to prepare as a team, um, to have people with different viewpoints on the team 
So you have access to sort of, a, you know, a broad, broader, more creative way of thinking. Um, and in if you're actually going into negotiations as a team and sitting at the table as a team, make sure people understand their roles. So again, this takes a pre-meeting. Um, you know, who's going to talk? Who can make concessions? Who's going to ask questions? Who's going to ask the hard questions? Make sure someone is a good note taker so that you document what goes on in the negotiation, what you asked for, what they asked for, what they said, how, you know, how they seem to react to certain issues. And, and, and do a lot of planning where you can, um, you know, maybe sort of role play what you expect to happen from the other side. All these things you can do better as a team than as an individual. Um, there's a popular book when I was in college, and, and many of the people who listen to this show are close to my age in some way, 61, which you wrote about called Getting to Yes by Roger Fisher, Fisher and, and William Urey. Is that how? Yeah, William Urey. Yeah. It was considered a, uh, as principled negotiation. Sound like a good process. Um, please explain the concept and why it's not considered the right way to go today. Well, it, I'm not going to say that it's not the right way to go. There's a lot of benefits um, in negotiating the way that they talk about. It's just that it doesn't always work in business situations, especially against uh, you know a hard bargaining uh, counterparty. Um, but the idea of principal negotiation is that you can negotiate your interests rather than the deal itself, and and. And it, it can work if you're dealing with another principled negotiator where you can kind of step back from what you really want and put things on the table and come up with a, with a good deal for both parties. What tends to happen in business, and you have to be able to get beyond, is a, sort of a contentious, hard bargaining negotiating to start. And if you're not willing to negotiate in from a hard bargaining position to at least get beyond that stage to where you can be more, more creative. Um, you can be at a, a disadvantage going into a business negotiation. Um, what's the best way to use leverage that uh, the other side doesn't walk out or feel the need for revenge, which we alluded to a little earlier? Yeah, so, so leverage is a two-edged sword. You know, you, 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 you want to use it but you don't want to hammer people over the head with it. So, so things like using your leverage to bully the other side, to give ultimatums, to pressure people on particular issues is not a good idea. It's better to use it to nudge them along to what you want or just keep it in your back pocket and know you can say no to what they're saying because you have this leverage. Um, you know, if you, if you talk about using leverage, you know, and you've, I know you've got on your list something about Ukraine and Russia, and that's a, it's a yeah, frightening, yeah, it's a frightening situation. I don't really want to talk much about it because I'm not privy to all the facts. I don't really follow world politics, but there's a potential here for leverage use and overuse and bluster and threats that, that that could get out of hand i doubt that it will get out of hand but 
you know, I hate to see the posturing and the bullying from either side. Yeah, I mean, in their particular case, you know, one loses face and he doesn't want to lose face. There's so many different uh, different things in play from the politics in their own countries uh, to how they'll be viewed on the world stage. And that's just like in real life. I mean, it is real life, obviously, because people could end up dying if these folks can't come to an agreement and people who had no um, ability to negotiate for themselves were part of that. Uh, it could end up bad for everyone, as we saw the market went down yesterday, 600 points on this beer. Yeah. Um, here's a question from the audience. What are the key tips in negotiation that let you know you might be dealing with someone who is not negotiating in good faith? This is, And this is one of this does happen. And it's one of the most difficult situations. You might be dealing with somebody who is not dealing ethically, maybe you you outright know they're lying. And people I know who've been in negotiations say this is like one of the most difficult situations they've had to face when they know the person on the other side of the table is outright lying. And, and it's difficult. I would, the only thing I would say is to work to be aware of the facts, be willing to stick to your guns, don't call them out as liars, but just continue to say, you know, this doesn't work for us. Or no, I don't think that uh, that makes any sense for our side. Or I, I think we see this differently. I wouldn't go so far as to call people out as liars, but keep in mind and keep notes on people and 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 realize that if you're dealing with people who are not up front in one negotiation they probably won't be in future negotiations. So these are people you might want to try to weed out of your business negotiations. It's in your business life in general. It's, it's hard to go there, but it's, it's easy to start trying to develop options. And we've seen many of those people uh, in all levels of business and politics still succeed even when they lie all the time. So, and which has got to be a frustration to the people who are negotiating with them. Yes, and it's got to be difficult. And all I can say is, if you have the option to deal less with them or to deal with less important issues with them or their companies, you want to you want to try to work them out of your life. So, how do you think negotiating will change over the next ten years? Wow, that's kind of hard for me to say because I don't have a crystal ball and, you know, I'm, I'm in your age group as well. But I would say that over the next 10 years, um, things are going to continue going sort of the way they've been going. Things are going to continue to be more complex. Companies are going to be more inter interrelated. And negotiations got to go more toward um, working for better and greater long-term relationships and less and less for one-off commoditized deals. So I think it's just going to be more of what's happening. Um, the other thing I would say is that there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, difficulty and unexpected things happen as more disruptive technologies come into play. Um, and 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 they they just keep coming. So 
another thing you're going to have to be as a negotiator is somebody who's able to be quick on their feet and change sides and change positions if the landscape around you is changing quickly. I, I would say the main thing I would guess is that everything is going to be much more nimble as, as we continue to go forward. Uh, question from the audience. This goes back to people lying. If you have facts that prove a party is a liar, why would you not inform them that you know this and simultaneously work to improve your uh, BATNA uh, by seeking alternatives to negotiating with that person? Yeah, so I would say, yeah, do you do seek alternatives. Maybe you can try to change the negotiator. And I would have no problem or not hesitate to present the facts if they counter what somebody else is saying, I would just present them as facts. I would just be careful about, you know, calling people liars in meetings. Present the facts. These are the facts as we understand them. This is what we see, and we 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 differ on this issue, but we're we're sticking by the facts that we've got here. Uh, all of us have been negotiating our whole lives uh, from the time to get to stay up. You know, our parents don't want us to stay up till late getting a bike, dates, et cetera. How do you hone your negotiating skills? You know, what's a good way of doing it outside of the practice of actually trying to do it on the fly when you're negotiating yeah. for something well, real? Well, one is one, I, I, I do like to practice negotiating sort of whenever you can and wherever you think it makes sense. I mean, if, if you're, if you're checking into a hotel, it does, you no harm to ask for a better rate. Um, so yeah, practice negotiating whenever you can. Um, do it in your personal relationships. We're all too quick to give in to the other side. And for example, you know, my wife might say to me, you know, hey, let's go out to dinner tonight. Maybe I don't feel like going out to dinner. And she says, yeah, I want to go to that Italian restaurant. Well, maybe I hate that Italian restaurant. It <laughs> might be easy for me to give in and do it. But then I can think in the back of my mind, yeah. Hey, OK, let's go to that Italian restaurant. But next time we're going to my favorite Mexican restaurant so I can get a little something in the future on the deal and practice making trade-offs whenever you can. Um, what is your process for developing a negotiation negotiating strategy before you actually enter the negotiation? You know, you've and if you can give an example of this, that would be great as well. Yeah. So this is an important topic and it's an important question because one of the ways that you can you know optimize your ability to make a great deal is is to do good pre-negotiation planning and in doing the planning we really have a process with a few steps that you can kind of boil down to three steps but one i would say is is target setting and target setting is, is making sure you know what you want out of the deal. Frequently, we go into big negotiations and we think we know what we want, but we don't really know what we want. So target setting involves coming up with, um, you know, what you think would be a good outcome. So you, you can set your, your goals high, um, then what you're going to actually ask for and where you're going to walk away. So if you kind of know these in advance and you've thought about them and they're subject to change as you uncover more information during the negotiation, 
But if you have good targets in mind, you're better prepared to negotiate. When you think of those targets, you might then also think about where and why you have leverage. Because the, the leverage is such a key factor in negotiation. We usually underestimate the leverage that we have. And we attribute too much leverage to the other side. We generally have more power than we think we have because we focus and concentrate and feel the pressure on us. And we don't do as good a job as imagining and guessing what the pressure might be on the other side. So spend some time trying to do that. Hey, if we need this deal, why do they need this deal? What are they going to get out of it? What happens if it doesn't work out for them? What happens if we can't make a deal for the other side? Spend some time thinking about that and ask questions that might help you uncover your leverage. And then, so, and then I was going to say one other thing, and that is yep. to, to, to be prepared to expand the deal, which really means think of all the potential issues that are going on in this deal, maybe behind the scenes, maybe unspoken, but what else do they need? What do they need longer term? What do we need? What do we need now? What do we need longer term? What other things that we haven't even talked about might we be able to bring into play? What can we do for them very cheaply on our side that might be highly valued by them? What can they do for us? easy for them to do that's highly valued for us. And, and, and when you do all that pre-planning, now you're prepared to have a better negotiation. And, and you had mentioned earlier, uh, cultures are so different. Like in the Middle East, you, you come to an agreement and they go, oh, well, that's a good, you know, we came to this agreement, but now we realize that since you were willing to come down that much, that means you'll come down further. So now we're gonna break up this agreement and, and change the agreement. And for Americans, we're not used to that. Once we settle on a deal, we think a deal is a deal and we move forward. But every culture is different. Certainly in the Asian culture, same thing. They like the deal may not be the deal or they've agreed to the deal. And then you find out they've actually changed the deal that you agreed to. So everybody is, you have to really understand the cultures you're dealing with, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think um, it's sort of a mistake on our part in the USA and as Americans to, to, to experience this great relief once the deal is done and then we shake hands. It's like, oh, glad that's done. The deal is in place. We're all set. And people in other cultures, I think, are a little wiser and realize, well, yeah, that's just the first negotiation and what is going to end up being a series of negotiations. In, in the U.S., we're sort of not prepared for that outlook. But in the Middle East, for sure, it's like, okay, that's our agreement. That gives us a basis for further negotiations. Yeah, yeah. Americans get really thrown off uh, by that, and, and I think understand we sell. You, you please, uh, please explain the concept of the uh, Mobius negotiating continuum. What, what is that? Oh, the negotiating continuum. That that comes from you know our realization. It should be very basic. That, that all negotiations are not the same. And we use this continuum to describe how they're different. And on one end, you can think of it like as subway stops on the subway map or something. But at one end, you've got you know, hard bargaining, 
even haggling like you might do at a bazaar over a, a tablecloth or something or a carpet. Hard bargaining and haggling where you're really negotiating one issue, which is price. And as you move along, the and it's a mostly a one-off deal. So the relationship might not be important. And in this end of the continuum, you want to make the best deal you can for yourself. You don't want to be taken advantage of. You want to protect your interests and get a good deal for yourself. As you move across the continuum, the midpoint is this creative deal-making area where you can make a more complex deal by now making trade-offs. It's not all about one issue, price. It's about all the other issues. And it's maybe not a one-time deal. You, you need to be set the stage for being able to do repeat business. And on the far end of the continuum, you have relationship negotiations where the negotiation you're having over this particular issue may not be nearly as important as maintaining the relationship. And in all these areas, you've got to negotiate a little bit differently. So sort of understanding where you are on the negotiation, what strategies, what tactics make sense will help you do a little better in these different types of negotiations. Um, how do you negotiate with irrational people, which we often find in the government? There's irrational people everywhere. I, mm -hmm. I, I, hope, I hope they're not all over the government, but negotiating with irrational people is difficult. Um, and again, you've got to be patient. You've got to stick to your guns. You've got to ask better questions. Maybe you can help them see where they're irrational, but you've got to, to draw a lot out of them and you've got the work to do it. It's, it's easy to just say, oh my God, that guy's an idiot. I don't want to talk to him and be willing to walk away. But that's not a productive answer. And, and a lot of people are irrational, maybe at first, but if you get them engaged, if you get them to open up, if you get them to understand your point of view, you can find out that maybe that irrationality was a defense mechanism or it doesn't really reflect the person in general. So you've got to work to get past it. Can you please talk about why some people fear negotiating, which you wrote about in the book, and how do you get them over that? Yeah, it's very difficult uh, because, uh, I mean, we find a lot of people are sort of conflict averse. And if you're conflict-averse, negotiating is going to be an uncomfortable prospect for you. And the, the way to get over it is to just, you know, hold your nose and do it until you become more comfortable with the conflict in the situation. Learn to say no. Learn to not come to quick agreements. And, and it's difficult. And it it's... It's been so it's been widely recognized in a lot of areas. I remember years ago, we, we had a, a woman take over at one of the tech companies as CEO. I you know, could have been Reddit or eBay or something, but I remember her looking at the the salary disparity between the men and the women in her organization and saying, oh, oh man, this is just not right. What's going on with these women? And one thing they noticed was that women were not willing to negotiate aggressively their starting salaries as men were. And so they'd end up 
starting at a lower salary and then get lower raises on top of that. So over a few years, the disparity was greater and greater. And her, her idea was, look, we're going to outlaw negotiating over salaries. And what I think is, is a better approach is to, from the get-go, train everybody in the organization to be more willing to negotiate. I agree with you totally uh, about that. And, and we always hear that that's the case for why women don't have uh, reasonably good salaries. So when you're dealing with a bigger, more powerful entity, what should your strategy be to not get bulldozed in these negotiations? So your strategy, I think, it has to, to come from a couple of places. One is, even though the your adversary, the other organization, is larger, more well-funded, bigger, has better lawyers, has everything on their side, and you're a little guy negotiating with them, it, again, it goes back to trying to understand or develop some leverage for your position. Yeah, even if all that's true, why might they need me or my product or my services? If they have other options, why can't they use those other options? Why? What might limit them from using the other options? And when you can start to understand and and then maybe even ask questions to try and ferret out this information of why you might have some leverage in the deal, then you can use all the tactics and the strategies to, to, to keep from giving in, which might allow a better deal for you or ideas relating to a better deal for you to bubble to the surface. One thing that can always happen is Usually, bigger, better-funded organizations have some resources that they that are valuable to you that they can deploy with very little effort that might help you get more out of the deal. So be willing to ask for what they can do for you to make this deal better that might be better than just paying you more money up front. I mean, it could be help with marketing. It could be endorsements. It could be testimonials. It could be, you know, ideas on future business, but there are ways that this bigger organization might be able to help you do better if you're willing to ask for it and try to tap into them. Please explain what a creative deal maker is, and we can assume we kind of get an idea of this. And why wouldn't we all aspire to be this type of negotiator? Because there's you list a lot of different types of negotiators, but it seems to me the creative deal maker is what we should all aspire to. Yeah, I think we should all aspire to be a, the creative deal maker. And the creative deal maker goes the extra mile to try and find other areas they can bring into the deal to make it better for themselves and better for the other party. And I don't see why we wouldn't all want to do that because no matter what deal we make, Mark, there's always some better deal we could have made. Now we'll think about it later, but we we want, I think we do want to keep this as an uh, an ideal. Be be willing to make trade offs and find the areas of trade off that make a deal better for you and better for me. Now there are places where that doesn't work as good. I mean, if you really do strictly deal in buying or selling commodities, and you know your profit margin is going to depend only on the prices you can get or pay then you might have to be more of a hard-nosed bargainer. 
But in general, there's plenty of opportunity for us to be creative and to be creative deal makers in all the deals we make. You write about a company that charged a premium to Mobis and that Frank Mobis accepted it. How did that happen? And what can we learn from that? Because often many of us would like to charge that premium and uh, we're afraid to even do it. Yeah, it's interesting because in in the history of my working as a negotiating subject matter expert, we usually deal on the selling side with companies that sell the higher priced products. And they want to be able to get the higher price because they offer something that the low price, strictly commodity seller doesn't offer. But it's still hard to ask for and to get that premium, even if you deserve it. Now, in the case that you're talking about, um, Mobis was pretty much buying a commodity item, asphalt, from a, from a supplier. Uh, the reason he ended up paying a premium and was willing to pay a premium was over the course of a previous agreement, the supplier really went the extra mile to provide good service, loaned him machinery when his broke down, uh, kept the plant open so they could double capacity when they needed to. Oops, sorry. Just ignore that. I can't really stop it. But if you are going to charge a premium and you think you deserve a premium, ask for it and document how you go the extra mile to deserve this premium that you think you, 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 you should have. If you can't document it, if you don't have stories to back it up, if you don't have happy people on the other side of the deal who are buying or using your premium, you know, maybe when they tell you they don't enjoy paying for your premium service that they're not getting, you need to understand what's going on. So have the mindset that if you deliver a premium product, you deserve to be paid for it. Be willing, be willing to understand that maybe you're not delivering the premium product or service that you think you are. Well, we've been paying that to Apple Computer for a long time. There's always lots of other options that are much less expensive. And yet we still end up paying two or three times as much for the Apple product because they've shown you why this is worth a premium price, right? Yeah, it's... It, well, it is to some people and it is not to others. But if that pre if it's worth it to you, if that premium is worth it to you, be willing to pay it. So here's the last question for you. You write about finding the hidden power when negotiating with the sole source. How do you, how do you do that? And what is that hidden power? Well, it's this is one of the most difficult things that uh, people on the buying side run into. They have a sole source provider. Um, and maybe it's 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 a real sole source. There's, this is one particular ball bearing we need to use out of a one particular metal compound. It's specified in our project, and only one plant in the world makes it. And now they want to give us a you know a 18% price increase. Well, what can you do? There are a couple of things. One is um, when you're faced with sole source situations you can try to develop options for yourself. And they may not be immediate, but there may, there may be a way to develop 
some options. Work on modifying your design, work on modifying um, the specs for the part or the thing. Start conversations with other companies that might make a similar or competing product and maybe help them get going. You might be able to, um, uh, you know, sort of better understand the marketplace and realize there are competitors out there. So maybe just digging will help you find competitors. And a big thing is to negotiate as if they're not a sole source. Sometimes we let them know they have all the power right off the bat by the way we interact with them and treat them. So just treat sole sources as if they were normal suppliers. And if things get really bad, don't be afraid to say, hey, look, we need your business. I think you appreciate our business. We'll continue to do business. But I got to tell you, we're not happy about the way you're treating us. And we're going to look for and we're going to work toward developing other options so that you can't lord this over us as much going going forward. Try to put their long-term interest in conflict with their short-term interests. You know, this might limit you from getting more business from us in other areas. So there's, there's lots of ways you can negotiate with sole sources. The easy thing is to throw up your hands and say, I'm at a disadvantage here and I'm bound to lose. The creative way is to look for other things to bring into the deal to maybe make them more willing to talk to you about the position they're currently taking. Bill, I so enjoyed it. It was a fast hour. Uh, I thought uh, you really uh, gave me a lot of, to think about. And you and I talked before about my own negotiating with some other stuff. So I thank you so much for taking the time. It's a great book. I hope people will take advantage of it. And we'll be sending everybody a link uh, so they can buy your book uh, on Amazon. So enjoy, uh, everybody, enjoy your weekends. Please be safe. And I'll see you all next week. Bill, yeah. thank you again. Thank you so much, Mark. And if I can throw one quick plug in our company, yes. our company Mobus Creative Negotiating at mobusinc.com, M-O-B-U-S-I-N-C.com. We do negotiating training. We have an online program. It's on special deal. If anybody wants to get more immersed in negotiating, book is great. Online training is great. Live programs work as well. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Take care now. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.